Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message today entitled, Seizing the Moment. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. William Shakespeare once wrote, There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Amidded, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. I think what he meant is that if one doesn't seize upon the moment when it's presented, once that moment is passed, it may never come again. The saying is meant to say when the force of events turns in your direction, once you've recognized the moment for what it is, then what you must do is act. Now, of course, that's good counsel in the affairs of human beings, but the saying could also be said in the affairs that God provides. God is surely sovereign over all things, which means he not only controls all things, but he brings all things into being. It's our task to recognize the moments that God has provided. Jesus has given the church a task. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Start out in Jerusalem. According to the book of Acts, the moment God provided happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, seizing the moment. Peter found a place to preach a sermon to all the assembled people there. He pleaded with his listeners to to recognize that Jesus was both the Messiah and Lord of all, and that now was the time to repent of their sins and to save themselves from their wicked ways, to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And that moment, while it wasn't manufactured by the church through the use of clever marketing techniques, that moment was provided by the sovereign design of God when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Seizing the moment, 3,000 were baptized that day, and the church of Jesus was begun. The same thing happened again when the church moved beyond Jerusalem. Persecution forced the church out of Jerusalem. The sovereign hand of God was at work again. And seizing the moment, those scattered shared the good news of Jesus wherever they went. Had they simply hung their heads and grouched about that very painful turn of events, nothing would have occurred but spiritual eyes helped them to see the sovereign God at work. Another grand opportunity brought upon by God happened as Philip the evangelist was preaching the good news in Samaria. And then an earth-shaking moment when Peter was praying on the roof of the house in Joppa. Suddenly he sees a vision which corresponds to a Gentile company showing up, urging him to go to Caesarea, to a group of Gentiles gathered in a Roman commander's house, awaiting to hear what he had to say about Jesus. You see, in each case, God provides the moment, and the church of Jesus seizes upon that moment. And stop for a moment and think about the important lesson that we can learn from that. See, the church of today has to learn from that pattern. We need to gain the spiritual eyes to see when it is that God opens doors. Sometimes those open doors to the unspiritual eye, it looks like just pain and disappointment but to the eye of faith, the eye that understands that God is sovereign, meticulously sovereign, that he controls all details. Well, the eye of faith will look for what God has provided in those life-changing moments. I think that both as individuals and as a church, if we were to constantly look for the hand of God, we might be overwhelmed by what we see. Well, the last part of Acts 11 gives us exactly such a picture. Peter had not been planning how he would make inroads into the Gentile world. If you would have asked him at that point in time, 
just before the servants of Cornelius showed up at his house, if it had asked him how he's planning to make inroads into the Gentile world, I think he would have told you he didn't even have a clue. But God provided the moment, and Peter was willing to seize that moment. Now, one more thing. When Peter preached to that packed house, that is the house of Cornelius in the city of Caesarea, filled with Gentiles, he had not yet worked out a theology of how Gentiles could be a part of the people of God. See, the working out of the theology of, you know, how the uncircumcised would be a part of the people of God, well, that would be worked out later. See, at one point in time, and we get that when we read Acts 15, that matter almost split the church. And then it was Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, who would write extensively on that matter. He'd explain it biblically, and he would provide the basis for evangelism everywhere. See, and I'm trying to make a point here that the theology of that would be worked out later. Peter was simply seizing the moment Christ had given him. And there's something that did happen immediately after the conversion of the first Gentiles. The Jewish church of Jerusalem did something extraordinary. They made a statement. The leadership of the church said, we believe that God has granted the Gentiles a repentance that leads to eternal life even though they haven't been circumcised according to the law of Moses. We don't yet know how God did that. We just know it's true. And if you had the eyes to see it, that was a divine moment. It was time to seize that moment afforded by the Holy Spirit and and be all over that. And that's exactly what happened. We've come to the latter part of Acts 11, the seizing of what up to then was one of the most significant moments the church had ever faced. And I'm happy to report, empowered by the Spirit, they did it. They knew that the moment was upon them. It was time to turn their face to the Gentiles. It was time to take action. Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So Luke takes us back to the moment when the initial persecution arose in Jerusalem, that is, after the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr. He says the believers were driven out and they traveled first to Phoenicia. And if you can imagine a map of the area in your mind, Phoenicia would be immediately north of Israel, right along the Mediterranean Sea. So think of it as more or less what we might think of in terms of the modern day nation of Lebanon. Next, Luke mentions Cyprus, which is a very large island. It's off the coast of Lebanon in the Mediterranean. And this will play into the story because that's where Barnabas came from. And then says Luke, some went as far as Antioch. We also know from Acts 9 that some went to Damascus, which was not that far north. We know that because, and you might remember, Saul of Tarsus was traveling to Damascus. He was going to arrest believers there when Jesus, of course, met him on the way. But Antioch is quite a bit further north. In fact, Antioch is so far north. Again, you have to imagine a map in your head, but it almost touches the southern border of modern-day Turkey. Antioch is a part of Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus described Antioch as the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And estimates suggest that the city at that time had over 500,000 inhabitants, and in the ancient world, that was a very large city indeed. It was situated on the Orontes River, is a little over 30 kilometers inland from the Mediterranean. 
It was about 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem, and it was one of the most significant cities in the Roman Empire, and its trade routes led from Rome as a gateway into trading with the Far East. Go back to Acts 6. You remember, that chapter dealt with the appointment of what I called the first Christian deacons, that is, seven men who were called upon to make sure that the daily distribution of food for widows would be fair and equitable. One of those seven men, according to Acts 6.6, was a man named Nicholas, and Luke adds that Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch. And that would mean that he was a Gentile from Antioch, but that he had become a full convert to Judaism. He would have undergone circumcision, and he would fully have committed himself to the law of Moses. But somewhere along the way, when he heard the gospel of Jesus, he, he was a convert a second time, this time to Christ. And we have to imagine that when the persecution broke out, Nicholas probably went home to Antioch. And since he was a leader in the church, we have to imagine that he took a large number of refugees, all fleeing persecution, with him. Now, this will become an important part of our story. But says Luke, way back then, when the first persecution broke out, the fleeing Christian refugees were preaching the gospel. So they must have arrived in Antioch, and says Luke, at that time, they were only preaching the gospel to the Jews. Now, we should know that. But then we keep reading Acts 11, 20 to 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, in those days, there would have been quite a free movement, often for the sake of business, from the island of Cyprus to the city of Antioch. And some Christian refugees from Cyprus also ended up in Antioch. See, our translation says they spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, are the Hellenists merely Greek-speaking Jews? Well, the way Luke mentions this, he seems to indicate that they were Gentiles. It may have been even prior to Peter's encounter with Cornelius, some in the church of Antioch were already winning some Gentiles to faith in Christ. Oh my, look what God is up to now. We want to extend thanks to all those who take the time to encourage us. Here's a special note we just received. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. We're so thankful to hear responses like this from people all over Canada. And we're thankful for those who give financially so that Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives across this nation and beyond. You're joined by thousands who have a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gifts and your prayers are critical. So please continue to support this program so that others would grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There's a line in Acts 11:21 that we must not pass over too quickly. It's a line that tells us so much about what the early church did and thought about evangelism. Acts 11:21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Does that strike you as unusual? See, I ask that because I'm quite sure that very few of us would write the line that way. See, we would have said that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great many believed and turned to the Lord. 
But Luke doesn't say that, does he? He says, a great many of those who believed also turned to the Lord. And I point that out because clearly Luke does not think that all who believe actually turn to the Lord. See, to turn to the Lord means that one has become a disciple of Jesus. We turn to him in obedience. You know, like any disciple, we allow our Lord to train us and teach us. We become submissive to his will in our lives. For instance, when our Lord teaches us to forgive our enemies, we say, yes, teach me how. When our Lord says that we are to give to the needy, we say, yes. When our Lord teaches us not to divorce our spouses, we say, yes. When our Lord teaches us not to lust, but to remain committed to sex only within the confines of heterosexual marriage, we say, yes. Don't you see, after we have believed, after we have put our faith in Jesus, we turn to him to direct our lives. Luke says, a great many who believed turned to the Lord. And that's how Luke, and for that matter, the early church, thought of converts. Many of those who believed turned to the Lord. It's a, it's a telling statement. But let's get back to the wider context of our passage. The church in Antioch has been doing extraordinarily well. In this very important and influential city, the gospel's flourishing. Believers are sharing their faith with fellow Jews. And then amazingly, the good news of Jesus has found a receptive audience among Hellenists, Greeks, probably Gentiles from a variety of different backgrounds who spoke Greek and who found that Jesus was the answer that their tired hearts were looking for. So let's let Luke continue the story, Acts 11, 22 to 24. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, Luke takes the account into the present. The church in Jerusalem has just heard Peter give his account of what has occurred in the case of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit has fallen on uncircumcised Gentiles, and now it's clear that the Holy Spirit is not making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Together, Jews and Gentiles form one family in Jesus. And if that's so, and now the report about Antioch, Gentile converts, is now coming to the Jerusalem church, what would the church do? Would they ignore it? Hardly. Should they be glad but do nothing? No, no. For at this time, the church in Jerusalem is still the center of the global Jesus movement. So what would this church do? Clearly, the Holy Spirit had provided a God-ordained moment, and now was the time to seize the opportunity. See, it seems, from reading the account here, that all the apostles must have been occupied. You see, when the gospel came to Samaria, the church immediately sent Peter and John. But apparently, now they must not have been around. And so we learn, they said, Barnabas to Antioch. So why Barnabas? Who's he? Well, go back to Acts 4. That was the time when the early church, having just been formed, had many members. They were selling property, making it available for the poor members of the church who didn't want to go home, but they wanted to remain a part of the church. And that's where Barnabas came in. Acts 4, 36 to 37 said, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So his name was Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas because of his generous spirit, his encouraging attitude. He's lifting up the entire community of believers. We also learn that he was a priest from the tribe of Levi, as well as that he was from Cyprus, close to Antioch. 
What else do we know about Barnabas? We'll go ahead to Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus had become a convert, and after some time he had shown up in Jerusalem, the very city where he had once persecuted believers, and everyone's afraid of him, and no one in the church wants to go and meet him. How do we know, they must have said, that it's not just a ruse. Maybe he wants to trick us. Maybe he wants to arrest more. That's why he says he's a believer. And here again, there comes the son of encouragement, Acts 9.27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. See, Barnabas is the very first person in the church in Jerusalem who believed that Christ can transform even a man like Saul of Tarsus. How utterly amazing. But I hope in those two incidences that you can see both Barnabas' commitment to Christ as well as his grasp of the wide embrace of grace. There must have been more examples of Barnabas' faithfulness. He's a man deeply rooted in the faith. He's involved. His name was well known among the apostles. And if the apostles are elsewhere occupied to the leadership in Jerusalem, Well, they think they've got no better man than to send Barnabas to Antioch. Luke himself adds that he was a good man, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. That's just the kind of man to call on when the Holy Spirit's doing something new in Antioch. Now, says Luke, when Barnabas arrived, he saw the grace of God. Luke says he was exhorting the new believers to remain faithful to the Lord. But Barnabas must also have seen the need for greater biblical training for the new believers. And Barnabas must have been aware of both his gifts and the areas where he needed help. Clearly, he saw that more biblical training was needed than he could supply. Since so many were coming to Christ so quickly, how was he to get the kind of help he needed in training these people? Clearly, God was at work. How was he going to seize the day? How was he going to make the most of his opportunity? See, a lesser man than Barnabas would not have admitted to himself that he didn't have the gifts that were necessary to train these believers well. But because Barnabas is filled with the Holy Spirit, that means he's filled with humility, and he cares more about the gospel than he cares about receiving the credit. There's so much to learn from Barnabas. And so you have to imagine him in prayer, and you have to imagine him going through the names of people that might help. Then he remembers Saul of Tarsus. When the Greek-speaking Jews had threatened to kill Saul, he and the church had put him on a ship, and they'd sailed him home to Tarsus to minister there. And Barnabas knew that Tarsus was just up the bay from where he was now. Could it be that God was opening up another door, another opportunity to seize? Who knew the scriptures better than Saul of Tarsus? Nobody. Acts 11, 25 to 26 says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Yeah, right there, as Barnabas and Paul were team teaching for a whole year, this church was going to become a spiritual powerhouse. And for that reason, it was fitting for a reason that Luke does not tell us, but it's right here that the followers of Jesus first got their name, Christians. It's because these people identified so much with Jesus. But Luke's still not done. There are more opportunities to be seized. Acts 11, 27 to 30. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There's so much to be said about the role of prophets in the early church. Suffice it for now to simply say that the prophets were people who taught words of encouragement as well as predicted future events. None of them were charged with writing scripture. At any rate, Agabus, led by the Spirit, predicts a famine that will greatly affect the Jerusalem Christians. And here, seizing the opportunity, the Antioch Church has an offering, and they send money to Jerusalem. And those of you who know your New Testament well will know that's but the first time that this was done. You'll also know that this act reminded the Jerusalem Christians that the Gentile Christians deeply loved them and that the Gentiles and the Jews were one church in Jesus. That came from Antioch. It wasn't going to be two churches, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. It was going to be a growing church of Jews and Gentiles who loved Christ. Did you notice none of this was planned by any people? It was always done by God. He takes the initiative. But when God does something, people are not called to just sit around and watch. We have to seize the moment and maximize the things that God is doing. We need to still do it today, just like they did it then. Thanks so much, John. You know, when you consider the great advancements of the gospel, is it always a result of God first taking the initiative, in essence, leading the way for us? Yeah, absolutely. Every single time. If we don't recognize that, uh, we will try to rob glory from God. Um, He sent his Holy Spirit, uh, who comes to convict the world of righteousness and judgment. Um, So, you know, he brings conviction, first of all. But we've also known from many missiologists that cultures themselves are sometimes moved so that an entire culture is aware of God and aware of a response to God. Now, sometimes living in our culture, in which it seems to be going the other way, you know, we don't see that, but we can see in individuals, and I've seen it many times, you know, you get an individual who's just so prepared for the gospel, and when we see that, we should recognize, you know, I mean, who's prepared that person for the gospel? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit has, and he's given us the marvelous privilege, you know, to get involved in that and to to share the gospel and to, to see much fruit. So, yeah, God always is first, and we follow his lead. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Neufeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that is being done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, 
Visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425.